Hello everyone, I'm Dr. Fiona Pathiraja, the Health Tech VC. On this podcast, you'll hear me in conversation with ambitious startups, outstanding investors, and visionary leaders in health tech. This week's guest is Professor Whelan Sommer. In 2014, Whelan left frontline medicine in Germany to start his own company, Smart Reporting, which develops AI-based smart reports for radiologists and pathologists, helping them to improve their workflow and to classify valuable healthcare text data. Today, the company is still headquartered in Munich, employs over 60 people, and has over 10,000 users in 90 countries around the world. Smart Reporting has recently raised 15 million euro funding round that we at Christogalli Ventures participated in. During this podcast, Wieland and I cover many topics from spotting a clinical need for innovation and commercializing it, the principles of key hires in a startup, fundraising, and how to structure big data. We also talk about Whelan's experiences at Harvard University, where he undertook a master's in public health, and also touch on whether AI will take over the jobs of all radiologists in a decade to come. So Whelan, welcome. Thank you for being here today. Hello, Fiona. Thank you very much for inviting me. I would love to know a little bit about how you've gone from being a professor of radiology in this very academic role to now being CEO of this very successful company. It's quite interesting and actually a lot of really unforeseen opportunities um, came along and it actually started when I was um, a resident in Munich at the LMU, one of the largest academic centers for radiology in Germany. And I, I had a doctoral student um, who was also a software engineer. And in fact, I had a couple of workflow issues where I saw many inefficiencies uh, in the workflow. And actually, the first time I got into touch with entrepreneurship was not even smart reporting, but I had to do the monthly scheduling of, of our entire department. And this was all Excel-based, and we tried to to improve this and uh, it seems quite logical that um, Excel is not a good tool to really do the monthly scheduling because there are so many dependencies and it takes so much effort to do that. So we basically started off with something which then became a spin-off and is now uh, actually quite successful uh, here in Germany for uh, physician and, and nurse scheduling. And um, this actually opened this door of entrepreneurship, which I think uh, for most medical doctors is not um, very present yet, at least not um, at university. And from there, we also had this idea in terms uh, in, of radiology that you're producing uh, um, hundreds of reports per week and everyone is talking about big data. But if you look at um, how much information you can get out of um, free text radiology report, it becomes very clear that it's an, not an efficient way to, to structure data or to, to make academic research. So the structured reporting was around as a necessity for many years, but um, I think there were inefficient uh, tool sets and not really integrated into a clinical workflow and um, not uh, into account the latest guidelines. And I think this was uh, the need where we actually started with the company Smart Reporting in 2014. Gosh, so, so it's a big journey that you've had. Just to talk a little bit about actually smart reporting and what it does. What is the product and who buys this? If you think what a radiologist is doing, he or she um, is looking at X-ray, CT or MRI images. 
then you have some sort of a diagnostic reasoning. You see something in the images, for example, a lung nodule, and think, okay, what does it mean for the patient? So um, is it new? Uh, is it um, suspicious for cancer? So you actually have to keep the guidelines in mind and what it means for the patient treatment. And then in the end, the medical document which you produce is a radiology report. And this is typically done that you um, have a speech microphone and you dictate um, something as a free text document. Now, the problem which is actually present is that everyone thinks radiology is fully digital. And it is quite digital in terms of um, you have digital images. Mm. But after the image, if you show the same image to five different radiologists, they use different criteria, so different diagnostic reasoning, and they dictate a radiology report in uh, quite different ways. And, and this leads uh, to various inefficiencies in the workflow. One is that people use different language, people use different style of reporting, subheadings. And one of the most um, important things is that if you want to access the data, this, um, uh, it is very difficult to, to really data mine these radiology reports. Since everyone for the last 10 years is talking about big data and right now about artificial intelligence, Having structured data produced by radiologists in, in the clinical workflow is one of the most important things. So that's where we started Smart Reporting. We started off with a website called smartradiology.com. Mm. And we had a fully web-based solution where we provide an assisted reporting tool for radiologists, where, where we have the current guidelines by international societies and we assist radiologists by asking them the right questions that uh, we have a fully structured, fully um, objective uh, report, which is fully data mineable. And overall, um, we evaluated the effects and the quality increases um, dr um, dramatically. We have um, higher efficiency in the workflow. And then the third thing is that you can fully data mine all of your reports. I think one of the interesting things we talked about here is that most people think that in radiology, the real data is the images. And actually, that is true, but there's this huge, powerful data stream of all the texts that we use. And I know from when I was a radiologist that there's always a debate about how different people did their report. And I think it's really interesting because radiologists sometimes see their report as an art as opposed to a science. Lots of radiologists like the fact that they have the power to write their own report in their own way. And this, they might actually not be keen on having a structured report, uh, structuring their report for them. So how would you deal with that question from the radiologists who might want to use your technology? So that's a very good point and that's an interesting question and there are different sides to it if you ask referring physicians who send patients to radiologists they actually want structured reports all of them prefer really standardized reporting rather than getting different reports from different radiologists if you ask the radiologist there are um, different um, possibilities so he wants to get assistance by guidelines he doesn't want to be forced into decisions which he can't really do. So if you just show him uh, an option, yes or no, for a question which is more complex, then he will not like the system. For, and mammography is a good thing that it's not about uh, do you have breast cancer, yes, no. But in the meantime, there's a likelihood scale called BIRETS where you actually assess the likelihood of lesion being a tumor. Mm. So basically making a system which is flexible enough 
to allow the autonomy to the radiologist and which is standardized enough to compare between radiologists and fulfill the quality for referring physicians. That's what we're doing. So one of the things I'm very impressed by is that you have over 10,000 users, you're in 90 different countries. But of course, at one point, smart reporting was just an idea. Can you talk a little bit about how it's gone from the idea to product, especially in the proof of concept stage? Because I know lots of the startups who might be listening might be at the stage of saying, we have a minimum viable product, but we're wanting to get it to the next stage. Yeah, the thing is, we had our first minimum viable product was something we were showing at the German radiology conference, I think in 2015. And we wanted to have a fully web-based product where we actually provide help for young radiologists who actually register for the website and get assistance for um, complex cases. If you ask young radiologists, okay, so what are the top um, 10 uh, examinations where you're really unsure how to diagnose them, uh, you get based on the Pareto principle, the top 10, and, and this actually answers most of the questions. And we had huge feedback and we had our first 600 registered users that actually went to the website, used it. And we found the early adopters who, who were looking for such a product to help them make high quality reports in complex cases. And the, these complex cases were actually carefully chosen. And for example, if you ask a radiologist, do you know the latest classification, how you diagnose multiple sclerosis in a follow-up? Like everyone says, oh, I'm, I'm not so sure about it. This year, actually, uh, we had a COVID template. So how do you diagnose COVID in a chest CT? Mm. And what are the criteria according to the uh, guidelines? So yeah. this was also something very rapidly evolving. And we knew that basically by purely providing a web-based approach, we get users to be interested in that software. And interestingly, the users were actually driving us into the integrated versions. So they approached their healthcare IT vendors that we should be in integrated. And I think that was a massive step for us, uh, which we had to overcome in the beginning, because obviously healthcare IT um, is, uh, is, is difficult to get integrated and, and you need customers uh, who want it. And so we generated the demand in the beginning. You have direct sales and indirect sales. And I was wondering if you had any tips for working with big hospitals, which have these very long sales cycles. The thing about these long sales cycles is that uh, depending on the market, you have a private sector which has shorter sales cycles. But typically in, um, in, in the hospital setting, you can't really avoid long sales cycles. And we actually have a mix in our field. We have direct sales with indirect sales partnerships in different countries and we are actually also going to tenders right now so at the moment it's a mixture but but in fact it is the ramp up phase of, of a young company in this field is actually huge and it's also important for 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 example for investors to understand that because um, if, if if they come from a purely e-commerce uh, background and they have the impression that if you do more advertising today then the revenue will be up tomorrow that's not what you can expect in healthcare so i wanted to talk about the leadership team how you've managed to find somebody who has very different skill set to you and how much that has helped in terms of growing and scaling the company if you start a company it's good if it's at the beginning academic, but at some point it's about business. 
Yeah. So and, and I, I always had a personal interest in, in, in business and I also did a, a master in, 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 in public health with a lot of actually business related topics and uh, management and leadership um, uh, workshops. It doesn't really stay a purely academic team. Johannes really helped a lot as a CFO. He's also a lawyer and an auditor. So he really took care about all legal stuff, um, business and, and also finance. We also got a big leadership team regarding basically in operations, customer service, business development and so on. So really to have strong people in these positions are one of the key things if you start with an idea and you want to become more mature as a company. And how big is the team now? How is it split according to developers, sales, researchers? We are still very heavy on R&D. So we have uh, product management and uh, our software engineers um, are around 30 people. Yeah. And so we have three scrum teams. We have an additional research team. We have a um, large product uh, management team and product owners. So this is on the development side. Mm. And then we have marketing with business development, sales, customer service, and project management. On the business side, we have quite a small admin team, including HR, legal, and um, finance. So in total, how many are you now? Around 60. Gosh, that's, that's quite a bit. Have you learned any lessons from hiring? Because it, I imagine it's very different hiring into a startup than it is hiring in medicine. I realized that the most important resource in a startup in our sector of digital health is the people who are in the company. So managing HR is one of the key assets of a company and having a high number of applications is also one of the key things. So you need to position your company. And I think one of the good things is that digital health is probably one of the most interesting things to work in, also for software engineers, but also for business development and so on. So if you ask um, students today, many of them actually want to make a difference. And I think uh, the digital health space is actually one of the most rewarding uh, places to work. It is a very competitive market. We are in Munich, where we actually compete with uh, large uh, internet giants for the best people. So you always need to, to be quite active in, in looking for people in uh, making the company attractive as a workplace and so on. I wanted to move on to talking about fundraising, because as I mentioned, we invested in your very large 15 million euro raise that you did earlier on in spring this year. And you've been very successful at fundraising. And I was wondering if you could share some lessons of what it takes to do a successful fundraise, at, maybe not even at this stage, but at a seed stage. I think our initial investors invested in, it's not so much the business plan, but they wanted to know the team and they wanted to know if the market is big enough. But these were the two main topics they looked out for. And having in mind that the initial business plan, which you draft maybe after three months of being in the company, is not the, uh, the same as it will be two years later. So being agile also means uh, looking for different opportunities. And this is actually one of my key learnings in the beginning. We were lucky enough to have actually a very well-known investor in the beginning, Rolf Dienst, he's the founder of Wellington Partners who also um, assisted us a little bit um, over the next years uh, to structure fundraisings. And this made it actually much easier than in the very beginning. 
actually I didn't even uh, have any contacts into family offices or venture capital. So it wasn't that easy in the very beginning, but once basically we had um, a, a closer round of, uh, of, of business angels and family offices, it became easier. We are in a different stage right now. It's about uh, which markets uh, open up next. We actually have uh, huge cooperation contracts with big companies and therefore it, it, becomes, it becomes easier to, to acquire funding. That's a positive story for people listening when they're you know, try, trying to raise a seed round that actually it gets easier and easier as you become more successful. Yeah. My own personal belief is that healthcare is unlocking now. The sector is finally digitizing and COVID is turbocharging this digitization of, of healthcare. I wanted to know what you think are the biggest sort of obstacles and opportunities for driving innovation in healthcare at the moment. Um, I think COVID is a driver, although on the short term, it makes things more complicated. We didn't have any conferences this year. Our typical um, trade shows or sales shows where we actually uh, meet with customers. And next year, it will be very difficult. On, on the short term, it also made it very difficult to visit hospital clients because you just couldn't uh, visit them for two quarters. But on the mid and long term, I think there are a couple of opportunities. One of them is that there are large grants opening up at the moment to make a digital infrastructure. In Germany, there is a 3 billion grant uh, for digitizing hospital infrastructure. And, and I think a lot of things are coming at the moment which go into the right direction. And the other thing is that I think there is a mind change. Something like telemedicine for years yeah. has been really a little bit in a difficult regulatory setting right now you feel realize that it's the only way uh, in the pandemic how to really um, ensure the service to many people and i think um, this was a huge game changer so i think um, overall it is a turbocharger although the mid and long-term effects are much stronger than the short-term ones what do you think about the sector in terms of it's been a bit more conservative because it is a tricky sector. There's lots of regulation, issues around data privacy, long sales cycles. What are the obstacles that you might have faced as a company growing in this field? As mentioned already, long sales cycles, regulatory. Also, I think, um, unlike the US, in many European countries, the willingness from hospitals to pay for software is actually much lower. Many departments don't have a problem spending two million on a new MRI scanner. Mm. But if, if you talk about software as a service and, and you talk about uh, five digit numbers of, of euros per, per year, something like that, yeah. then uh, people are saying they don't know why it's that expensive. So I think in general, the willingness from systems to invest in software is also one of the obstacles. On the other side, I think is an attractive market. It's big enough. And these obstacles also basically reduce uh, the number of competitors in many uh, things. Because if you would go into markets which are much faster to access, then you also have a different number of, of competitors. So I think um, getting into this nitty gritty integration, the regulatory setting is also an obstacle for many others. And I think in the end, it has advantages, although it takes longer. One of the things from the flip side of this is that actually what's driving openness, there's 
the shifting patient attitudes because patients want these digital first solutions. So from the smart reporting point of view, when are we going to get a report that is written by radiologists that's able to be read by a patient and understand by a patient? What do you yeah. think about that? Yeah, we already have multilingual reports mm. so that, that we basically produce the same report in, in different languages. We also have the first prototypes of what you call lay language, I think, so as a patient understandable language, <clears throat> because it's one of the main barriers that you send around a document yeah. and then the patient starts Googling and, and there are many unclear things. Patient-centric um, reports is actually one of the big drivers. And you also mentioned so things that need to drive innovation is, you know, asking the question, who will pay? And that is very tricky because we talk about this with a lot of our earlier startups. That is something that's so important because you might have the world's best technology, but if no one will pay for it in hospital, it's not going to be integrated. The other question I want to ask you is about workflow, because what I've seen is that lots of great technology is out there. But if it requires a significant change to workflow, it can be very difficult to adopt. Is that your experience as well? So regarding the first question, who will pay? I fully agree. That's one of the most important things. We see there are, uh, like in our field, there are some changes in mindset. I didn't mention it before, but beside radiology, we are also in the pathology area. And there are a couple of drivers um, which uh, go into this direction. In pathology, um, some countries actually start really that synoptic reporting, like really structured data, mineable reporting, is um, really um, mandatory. So something like in Cancer Care Ontario started with it. Some parts of the US, the Netherlands, they really introduced this as, um, as, as a compulsory uh, component because mm. um, there are even studies, the evidence is so high, you know, the first studies in pathology, <laughs> the structured report lead to better patient outcomes, like longer survival. Yeah. This is actually quite interesting. So there's enough evidence that um, it will be driven um, uh, in, into the system. Then the question is, um, who else pays for it? We don't have the patient to pay for it. And for us at the moment, it's also not um, the, the health insurance, but, but typically we have quite a high value proposition for hospitals to pay for it. So I don't see this as the main obstacle. We also have a couple of um, pharma corporations where, uh, where there is interest in, in structuring data better at the source, providing tools, so um, they also pay for it. And the second question about the workflow, we realized that if you force people into a complete workflow change, it will be extremely difficult because people won't change just because of your software, um, like the system, for example. What we realized is that we need to be fully interoperable, meaning we need to be deeply integrated into all systems. And in radiology, there are quite a lot of systems. We need to be um, in the reporting system or radiological information system, the PACS, like the picture archiving system, and into these advanced visualization solutions. This actually took years to integrate it. And we started with a, our first version, which came um, out in 2015, only had a very light integration. And right now, over the last years, we really worked on this, on typical standards. And this actually was the nitty gritty part to it. And I think that's one of the prerequisites that you are not a standalone system. I, I just know from my workflow as a radiologist, you don't want to have an additional workflow for some sort of a tool set, then, then it's just um, not, it will be <clears> used. 
No, exactly. And often in hospital, there's plenty of things to do. You don't need another thing imposed on you that's going to make your day longer as opposed to actually helping you, right? I think it was the right thing to have an early MVP rather than developing for years something where you don't have users. Yeah. So basically accessed um, with an easier approach to the market and, and then really worked in deep integration and a, a better UI and interface. So moving away from work, I wanted to talk about yourself and your personal life a bit because you took the step outside medicine and that's very brave. And especially in a place like Germany, where there is a lot of hierarchy in, in the medical structure. How did you think about this in terms of a personal risk or career risk? In retrospect, it looks like this huge decision, which I took in the beginning, but Looking backwards, I started um, this as a spin-off out of university and I continued working beside that in the beginning. So for the first um, two or three years, I did this as a part-time job and managed out of my clinical setting how we do the first steps in the company. And when I stepped out of medicine, I, I had already 14 employees and we basically had a financing round. So I think um, at some point there was this decision that, okay, if I want to change something in the system, is it better to stay within the system or is it better to, uh, to go outside the system? Yeah. Obviously, from the outside, I think it, it somehow looks irrational uh, because yeah. basically um, I, uh, I, I was a professor in radiology and, and there are actually lots of opportunities And then in the end, it's, it's really a very personal decision if you want to take uh, this. I don't actually see that much of a risk because I see there are also lots of opportunities to do other things. If you have this interesting intersection between academic medicine and entrepreneurship. You mentioned earlier as well that you've done this master's in, pu in public health and you, you didn't mention that you did this at Harvard. So it's a big shift going from Germany to America. What was your experience of, of being at Harvard and what did you learn there about yourself and about your view of medicine? So I studied a master in public health, especially about clinical effectiveness. And if I did quite a lot of academic research and this was also the reason why I looked how can you get better data out of hospitals because back then when I started uh, becoming a resident everyone was talking about big data but um, people documenting with a pencil and paper and I, I realized during this course at, for public health that the first learning was how teaching is organized in the US is, is fantastic like it's really eye-opening you have um, um, so much motivation and there's really a red line through the entire course you have homework to do you, you stay engaged people really um, get the personal buy-in from all the students and so on so this was one of the key learnings i think the second thing was that i for the first time really got involved in a lot of this intersection between medicine and entrepreneurship in there so there are many people who founded a companies or also um, NGOs, but I, I didn't have this among my medical students uh, in, in Germany. And I think the um, third thing is that it, after this uh, master, um, you have a network from the university, which is probably more important even than the course itself. Having these interaction with people from so many different um, countries who did the same course with you, like uh, really very um, 
interesting people and, and lots of new opportunities to learn how others think about, this was probably one of the most important experiences. Yeah, when I did a master's in public health, I found the same thing that you're suddenly thinking about things in a very different way. And I was before looking at every patient interaction one to one, suddenly realized, wait, there's a much bigger system out here. My last question is a little bit controversial. In 10 years time, will there be radiologists? Will we be redundant? And is there a space for people to work alongside radiologists to work alongside AI in 10 years time? Definitely, there will be space for radiologists. And I think also the perception of the threat of AI has changed over the last three years. Whereas like in 2017, we had someone like Jeffrey Hinton, um, who won the uh, uh, Turing Prize, the Nobel Prize for, for Informatics. He said, uh, it's obvious that we should stop training radiologists right now. I think today's view is completely different. So um, I, I see that the repetitive tasks, what a radiologist is doing, like measuring things over time, comparing them, searching for new lesions, this will be semi-automated or fully automated. But um, the thing is, there's lots more to the radiologist workflow. And with this extreme abundance of, of images, which you have to see every day, I think there's not really the fear that the radiologist will be without any work anymore. I don't see the machines taking over completely. I think there are um, also many interactions with patients, with uh, referring physicians, tumor boards, discussion of complex cases, which will not be done by AI. Mm. And um, I think there's also a large component of, of uh, human interaction in medicine. And there are interesting studies for it. For example, that if a patient with chronic pain, you give him an injection as a, as a medical doctor with a white coat, or you use a perfuser, it's 30% more efficient if you uh, give them uh, as a human. And I think um, the fear that medical doctors will completely be replaced is not really valid at this time. Okay, on that note, we've got to wrap up. But Wieden, thank you so much for coming along today. Really appreciate your time and for a really interesting conversation. Thank you, Fiona. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe and leave us a review. Also head to the show notes to follow us on social media for all the latest content in health tech.